everyone. This is Brittany, and you're listening to the Canine Culture Podcast, where we discuss all things dog. Welcome to episode four of the Canine Culture Podcast. Today, we have a special guest, and her name is Kristen. Kristen is a licensed vet tech in the state of Texas. Uh, Previously, she worked in the state of Ohio. So welcome to the podcast, Kristen. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Okay, so like Brittany said, I'm originally from Ohio. Um, That's actually how her and I met. Um, Our husbands graduated together. Uh, Also, like she said, I currently reside in Southeast Texas. Um, I am married. We're coming up on our five-year anniversary this year, and I have three dogs. Um, I have a Great Dane who is deaf. We rescued her. Her name is Lexi, and she's 11 years old. We also have a Labrador Retriever mix. Um, His name is Wrangler. He's 12 years old, and we have a Papillon who is 10 years old. So I have been working as a licensed veterinary technician for nine years. And as of right now, I currently work at Neighborhood Veterinary Centers. It's NVC for short. It's in Nederland, Texas. And it's a 16,000 square foot state-of-the-art surgical facility. Um, You know, we also do routine appointments and preventative care and so much more. Um, We get clients from everywhere, including, you know, Florida, Canada, and everywhere in between. People come so far specifically for our orthopedic surgeries. Uh, And I highly recommend contacting us if you have a pet that needs surgery. A large reason that we have clients from so far away is our prices are extremely reasonable compared to other clinics that you might go to. So yeah, I can definitely speak to that because we drive all the way from Florida just to go to the vet in Texas. They not only are they very well priced, but they do a really good job. They don't take any shortcuts. So we really like to take the dogs for their routine annuals, but then also uh, for their dental cleanings because dental cleanings in Florida right now, the price that I've been getting is over $1,200. And one of our dogs, Stoney, she has three teeth. So three teeth, I'm not paying $1,200 to get her three teeth cleaned. And so it just makes sense to go to Texas. And uh, whenever we go in, they do everything for us. So I do love coming to that clinic. Uh, So Tell us why you became a vet tech. Was that always your original plan growing up? You know, some people, hey, I want to grow up and work with animals. <laughs> That's what I thought. But then I learned quickly I didn't have the heart or the stomach for it. Um, so, yeah, tell us why you became a vet tech. So, yeah, I mean, that's really the biggest reason, you know, from a young age, just like you, I've always had a passion for animals. It's just something that comes very natural to some people um, like you and I. And so I was just drawn to veterinary medicine as a whole. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was able to shadow a few veterinary technicians and just kind of see the hands on that they're able to do. And I fell in love with it. The nursing aspect of it is incredible. We are able to do so many things. Uh, You know, obviously the doctors are doing surgery and they prescribe medicine, but we're doing everything else. So it's really hands-on with the animals. And so that's why I I wanted to do it. It's something that is very rewarding. Um, And like I said, I've just always had passion for it. So 
What is the process for becoming a vet tech? And for all the listeners, there's a differentiation between a licensed vet tech and an unlicensed vet tech. And I don't know, you might even know the answer to this. I don't know if in every state that's an option. I just know, obviously, once you get licensed, usually you can scrub in for more surgeries. You have a little more autonomy. Obviously, there's a slight pay increase. So what is the process for becoming a vet tech? And maybe you can explain like what it looks like to become an unlicensed vet tech versus a licensed vet tech. Of course. So as far as a licensed vet tech goes, there are kind of three um, categories that you'll fall under as a either a licensed vet tech, a registered vet tech, or a certified vet tech. Um, that's just depending on what state you're located in. When I was in Ohio, I was a registered vet tech. And then when I came to Texas, it changed to a licensed vet tech. So for me, I went through an AVMA accredited school. That is important for someone who wants to be licensed. Um, AVMA is the American Veterinary Medical Association and it's two years of schooling. So my classes included everything in vet med, um, you know, general practice, where you typically see the smaller companion animals. It was large animal research, uh, shelter medicine, exotics, a little bit of everything. After those two years, I graduated and obtained my associate's degree in applied science of veterinary technology. After that, I applied for my boards. And after I passed my boards, I then applied for my license. Uh, So like I said, it's a little bit different in each state. When I moved to Texas, I had to take a jurisprudence test and just really over the laws of Texas and how they differentiate from Ohio. After I passed that test, I was able to be licensed in Texas. So the main difference, uh, I know from state to state, the just what either a vet tech or a veterinary assistant are called, it can be very different. So a lot of times in Ohio, a veterinary technician was, you know, automatically in my clinic of home known as a licensed vet tech. So that was kind of across the board. Everyone in our clinic that was hired in as a vet tech was licensed. If you were hired in as a veterinary assistant, you did not have a license, but you had a lot of on-the-job training, a lot of hands-on that you would learn and it was very helpful to have those people. They were great at what they did. It was just no formal education, but it was you know, on the job training education. So in Texas, it's a little bit different. Uh, So I am one of the only licensed vet techs at my clinic right now. Uh, But we do have a lot of veterinary technicians that fall under that category that are on the job trained that are amazing. There are people that have been doing the job for many, many years, and they just haven't taken their boards or they haven't went to get a formal education, but they know, you know, they know the stuff. It's, it's really on the job training. They've picked up a lot. So um, I, I would trust them with my pet, obviously. And so that's kind of the difference between the two. And I obviously, like you said, recommend the route of being going to an accredited school and getting a license and passing your boards, just because again, you have more opportunity in that. You can go into research, you can go into sales, you can go into surgery. There's just so many different things that you can do with that license. So if it's something you're interested in, I would highly recommend researching accredited schools near you. And so you said it's a two-year program, correct? Yes. Okay. Is there ever a time where that would be like a three or four-year program? Do you know? Definitely. So if you are straight out of high school, if you haven't taken a post-secondary where you would get your prerequisites, 
for the program. So, you know, basics like your algebra, your English, those basic things for each program, um, you know, they're, they're mainly the same. Those prerequisites are going to be the same across the board. And so it might take you three years if you're, you know, fresh out of high school and you need those prerequisites first. And you're also going to be applying for the program. So that might take a little bit more time too. If you're taking those classes and applying, it might take you, you know, it could take you three years. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and like you said, it's different for every state. So anyone that is looking at a particular state might want to really do the research around it. And, you know, you're not necessarily tied to the state that you do the research in, but it's just probably good to have that knowledge because kind of like with law school, you can go to law school anywhere, but it is kind of good to know where you're going to take the bar exam because the states test on different subjects. So yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so what does a day-to-day look like for you and or your average vet tech? And then, you know, as your job title, what are you responsible for? So I am specifically a surgery technician. So my focus is surgery. Like you said, if, if there was a different type of technician that I was at my day-to-day would be different. Uh, if I was a treatment technician, I would be doing treatments on patients. There's technicians that run appointments. There's, you know, even though we're all in the same clinic, there's a lot of different technicians under our roof. Uh, for me being a surgery tech, you know, the first thing I do when I get to work is I go and I check our surgery schedule. I kind of want to know what our day is going to look like, how we're going to plan it out and things like that. And just kind of get an idea of what we're going to be doing. Um, at our clinic, you know, when you go in for, when you take your pet in for a surgery, the first person that you're going to see is one of those room technicians. So they'll be there when you do your check-ins, your paperwork, all of those things. Um, you know, you, you might see the doctor as well. So that is going to be your room technician. After the room technician brings the pet back into our treatment area, that's really when I start my hands on. So the very first thing, we have a huge heart for animals. That is why we're in this industry. And so the very first thing I'm not going to lie to you is I'm going to cuddle that patient. Like I am going to love on them. I'm going to cuddle them. (laughs) Um, I'm guilty of sending patients home with lipstick on their forehead because I've given them kisses. Um, My coworkers always joke that the smaller the animal that comes back, the higher pitch my voice gets. I get so excited. (laughs) So if your patient is running late, if you guys send a very small Pomeranian for a dental and it takes three hours extra, it's because of Kristen. She's in the back in a blankie with the puppy. Absolutely. I am cuddling your baby. I am telling it how much I love it. Um, I am just giving it all the cuddles and all the love. That is something that is, you know, it's a perk of the job. So I have to take advantage of it. Right. Um, So after the cuddles, um, we kind of get down to business. What we're going to do first is I'm going to place an IV catheter. So it's an intravenous catheter that goes in obviously the vein that is that gives us access to your patient's vein for drugs that we're going to push for surgery. It can be post-op pain medication, anything like that. It's just much easier for us to do that one IV catheter stick instead of, you know, sticking your dog every single time they have to have an injection. It's not fun for us. It's not fun for them. It just makes it easier for us to have that IV access. And you do that for like every surgery. Does that include so uh, routine dental, uh, orthopedic surgeries, emergency surgeries. So for all of the above. Yes. That's going to include all of our surgeries. It's also going to include a lot of our treatment patients, our sick patients that we're bringing in that might need to be on IV fluids or something like that. 
the very first thing we're gonna do is place that IV catheter. It's just something we get out of the way. So we have easy access to those veins. Okay. So um, we also on most of our surgeries, uh, you know, any major surgery, our dentals, just like, you know, Stony and Titan, they all came and had blood work. That's something that we do as well as run a blood work panel. That's something that we recommend for any major surgery. And I recommend it for all surgeries, to be honest. It's just a good idea to get a baseline of health for your patient before it goes under anesthesia. That blood work is going to include, you know, checking on major organ functions. It's going to include a complete blood cell count to see if there's an infection, if your dog's anemic, if its liver is functioning okay, kidneys, the, you know, the whole nine yards. So it's a really good idea for us to do that blood work before surgery. And so that's another thing that I'll do in my day to day. So for the blood work, a question. So let's say you have someone come in, they're financially strapped or there's financial constraints is there an opportunity to do certain blood work and not others to reduce the cost? Or is there anything else? Because I know a lot of people, as soon as they hear it, they're like, oh my gosh, I can't afford this. I already have to pay for the procedure. So is there anything that owners can do there to lessen the the financial blow? So one good thing about our clinic is the quote that you're getting for your surgery is going to automatically include blood work. So say you're dental, you know, you're quoted at $300 that includes blood work. That's, you know, straight out the gate. There's no hidden fees there. Everything's included. Um, you know, there are not really options to run blood work that are, you know, specific because if we don't run for everything, we're not going to know what's wrong. So we can't really kind of pick and choose those organ functions unless we've had something you know, if a dog has previously come in with, you know, the beginning stages of liver failure, and we've seen that on previous blood work, then we can retest that individually. But until we know exactly what's going on, um, you know, there's not really an option to pick and choose what we're running for the blood work. Okay. So, you know, after we do that IV catheter and the blood work, then I will go and again, take a look at our patients who's checked in and see what surgeries we're going to do first. I'll go into our surgery suite and then with the help of our surgery equipment technicians, we'll start getting set up in our surgery suite for the day. Each surgery that we have is going to have a specific, you know, type of surgery instrument that we'll use. Every single surgery is going to be different. So it's, it's tailored to that surgery. So I'll go in get everything set up and everything ready. And after that, the technicians that are monitoring anesthesia are starting to get those patients under anesthesia. So I will go out and assist them with that. Before your dog goes into surgery, you know, there are things that we do. We take x-rays. We are going to prep that surgery spot. You know, everything that we need to do outside of our surgery suite, that is what I'll help with. So after that, I will, um, just like in human medicine, I will do a sterile scrub before I go into surgery. That's something that, you know, we just do to be sterile. It lessens infection. It's just something that you have to do to be in a surgery suite. Mm -hmm. my, my job specifically is to actually scrub in with our main surgeon, Dr. Hansen, and assist him in anything that he needs for the surgery, whether that's, you know, helping him hold bones in place, whether it's handing instruments, there's all different kinds of things that I would be responsible for as a surgery assistant with him. And at the very end of the procedure, I am actually responsible for suturing the skin incision that is on your pet. So no matter where that might be, it's leg, it's, you know, stomach, wherever that is, the final suturing process is something that I, as a licensed vet tech, am able to do. 
So that's exciting. You know, that's another reason why you might want to get that license that we talked about earlier. It's, you know, you have a little bit more um, room, a little bit more responsibilities that you can do. So after that suturing is done, I will um, help the technician that's monitoring anesthesia go take more x-rays. We might need to place a bandage, a splint, things like that. After that's done, the technician, again, who's monitoring the anesthesia is going to safely wake up your pet. At that time, I normally go and scrub in sterile for the next surgery. Uh, my day is kind of that process because I'm, I'm constantly in surgery. We're constantly getting another surgery down and I'm going in to assist with it um, kind of back to back. So that's kind of what my day looks like. Again, if I was a treatment tech or a room tech, my day would look different, but because I'm in surgery, it's it's very consistent that I'm going to be in surgery all day. How many surgeries do you guys normally have in a day? So it, it really depends on how heavy of a load our orthopedic surgeries are. You know, an orthopedic surgery can take a lot longer than a normal spay or neuter. So our doctor, Dr. Hansen, he does mainly orthopedic surgeries. So his surgery is normally anywhere from about 10 to 15 a day. Now, if we have a doctor that is doing, you know, general surgery, like spay and neuter and some soft tissue surgeries, they might be able to get more surgeries in per day. Um, but again, those orthopedics are going to take a little bit longer. So I would say anywhere from about 10 to 15 um, on a normal day. And what are the most common orthopedic surgeries that you guys see? Like you see recurring almost every day. So we see um, TPLOs. We see MPLOs. And ex ex explain all of those because I know I know what they are, but I know a lot of people, they get those. They're like, oh, your dog needs blah, blah, blah. And they're like, uh, they told me I needed something and it had some letters in it. So explain the two that you just said. <laughs> okay. So the MPL, it's a medial um, patellar luxation. So MPL, that's what it's going to stand for. And, you know, um, I think Sony, I think her knees kind of, um, medially luxate. So what it actually is, is the kneecap of the dog is going to slide in, you know, towards the inner part of the leg. And what we'll do is we'll go into surgery to correct that groove in their knee. And we might also have to place some pins in there just to keep that patella in place. It can be very painful when that patella slides out of place. And so an MPL can correct that. It can be very common in small dogs. Uh, it's, it's, you know, that is something that we see very regularly in a smaller breed. It's not uncommon to see in a large breed, but it is much in my, what I've seen personally, it's, it's much more common to see in the smaller breed dogs. Um, so that's the MPL. A TPLO is a tibial plateau leveling osteotomy. So um, that's a lot of words basically explaining that we're going to stabilize the stifle joint um, after it ruptures. And it's a cranial cruciate ligament that we're dealing with. And, you know, just it can either be from long term deterioration of that ligament or it can be from a lot of times what we see is a sudden movement or a trauma. So your dog jumps off the couch or jumps off the porch or jumps out of the car or, you know, is running in the backyard very quickly. We see it a lot in athletic dogs. So our labs, um, our pitties, things like that, we'll see it more in them. Um, but really it's, it's a surgery that helps um, just keep everything in place. So we, we really kind of restructure that knee and we put a plate on it as well to kind of reinforce everything. And it's, it just stabilizes that entire knee and um, it 
you know, <laughs> it helps them with mobility and in the long run, um, you know, once they have that plate on there, there is a 50% chance most of the time, sometimes more that they are going to tear their other knee. And so they might honestly have to have surgeries on both knees. That's not uncommon either. Uh, so I would always be prepared for that if you have an athletic breed, um, or something like that. So do those surgeries usually accompany like a, like a torn ACL or something like that? So there's actually not an ACL in dogs. Okay. Uh, that's where the anatomy is a little bit different versus dogs and humans. Um, what we see is tears in the meniscus and then also a tear in the, um, it's actually the CCL that I was mentioning earlier. Okay. Um, cranial caudal, or I'm sorry, cranial cruciate ligament. So okay. that's the difference there. Okay. Gotcha. So what would you say is the most challenging part of your job? And I know this question might be difficult, especially right now, because I feel like with COVID, a lot of people adopted dogs and, or they were home more frequently and they were able to see, Oh, my dog sleeps more than I thought. Oh, my dog does X, Y, Z. And I think we really saw an uptick in veterinary care, veterinarian care. And, uh, I know a lot of vet techs and veterinarians are feeling burnt out. So this might be odd timing, but basically what would you say is the most challenging part of your job? So I thought about this question and honestly, there are two major things that I find the most challenging. Um, I tried to think as my career as a whole, instead of the pandemic, the pandemic has brought just so many different challenges for veterinary medicine. Um, the, the workload, like you were talking about, the stress that everyone's under, not just you know the veterinary profession, but everyone's under a certain type of stress. So I tried to really focus on my career as a whole and what is most challenging. So it's not really gonna deal with the pandemic, but it is gonna deal with the stressors that we have at our job. So obviously one of the biggest things is gonna be euthanasias. And then another one that I thought was really challenging would be financial restraints. So obviously euthanasias are never easy. You know, as a vet tech, you might see us in the room with your patient and we might look like we have it all together, but I can't count the number of times that I've had to leave a room after, you know, the patient's been put to sleep and I've cried my eyes out. I honestly can't count as many times that I've done that. Um, it never gets easier. It is very difficult. So that is something that, you know, we could have multiple euthanasias on the same day. And that's something that just, it drains your soul. You know, it's just it's right. difficult. So um, another thing I would, like I said, uh, financial restraints are very difficult for clients, pets, and our staff as a whole. We always want to give your pet the best care we possibly can. And sometimes those financial concerns can prevent that from happening. Uh, trust me, as a vet tech, I understand that a lot of the surgeries or diagnostics, they can be pricey. But please keep in mind that, you know, your pet's care is by far our top priority. I did want to mention just as a vet tech, please never say to any member of the veterinary staff that we're just in it for the money. Um, I know a lot of vets that graduate with six figure plus debt. Vet techs on average, they make about $13 to $17 an hour. And the majority of the vet clinics are actually family owned. That means that, you know, we're not getting grants or large donors like you would see at a, you know, a human medical hospital um, for our medical equipment. So 
Equipment for diagnostics is extremely expensive. I know at our clinic alone, our MRI machine was about $800,000. So wow. and that's only one machine. Right. Uh, the, the money that you're paying for these surgeries, it's going into the equipment that we are using on your pet every single day. It doesn't make us rich by any means. Um, and in the veterinary community, we have huge hearts. So I think those two things combined is really unfortunate as to why there is such a high suicide rate among veterinary professionals. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if a lot of people are aware, but according to the AVMA, who we talked about earlier, who is kind of the, um, you know, the medical association for veterinary medicine, they had statistics where one in six veterinarians have actually contemplated suicide and vets are 2.7 times more likely than the general public to die from suicide. So again, I think a lot plays into that. Obviously our big hearts, the euthanasias, um, it can be an emotional roller coaster too that we have a euthanasia in one room and the next room we're going to can be a puppy wellness visit. You know, mm -hmm. we have emotionally pull ourselves together and be able for you to enjoy if you're that puppy's owner you, you we want you to enjoy your visit as well but the room we've just walked out of you know someone has just lost their best friend of 17 years and so it's really an emotional roller coaster so I didn't want to get too sad um so I wanted to bring it back to some positives uh as far as the financial restraints go there are things that we can work on um to kind of fix this issue and I wanted to mention those just in case anyone wasn't aware of them. So one thing is um, like Ashley and you had talked about on your previous podcast is knowing your breeds and what breed you're getting when you um, are getting a puppy. So different breeds are gonna have different genetic um, issues and you wanna know those. So you know what you're getting into as far as surgery or care in the long run. So you kind of can save for that. Um, you know, emergency funds are great to have there are options out there for pet insurance. Uh, some of those pet insurances, they might include just routine care for your pet. So your vaccinations, your annual dentals, things like that. And then some of them might even cover just emergency alone. So, you know, say your animal is, God forbid, hit by a car or something crazy happens, you know, that insurance is going to cover all of those emergency, you know, veterinary bills that can be very expensive. Uh, the two clinics that I have worked in, so Ohio and both Texas, they offer care credit. And care credit is a medical credit card that if you've ever heard of it, you know, you some dentists carry it, some cosmetic surgeons might carry it, and a lot of veterinarians carry it. So that's something, you know, you might want to have on hand. You can apply for that. And if something arises with your animal, you can put that on your care credit card. Typically, my husband and I have used it on our pets and you have about 12 months. Don't quote me exactly because it might have changed. But when we had ours, it was about 12 months, almost same as cash until that interest starts accruing. So it, it really gives you a good option to be able to provide the best care that you want for your dog um, and not completely go bankrupt, which which we understand. You know, it's it's definitely not cheap, but um, right. Yeah, I think care credit, I think uh I think it's still backed by Synchrony Bank. Again, don't quote me, but your level or uh qualification for interest free, it largely depends on your credit. Um it, it which your credit profile depends on a lot of things, but 
Uh, if you, I think you can apply for it independently outside of the vet. Like you can go to Synchrony and get a care credit card. Uh, but kind of on that note, I know what we found ourselves doing, uh, whenever we were doing all of the cancer treatments was we just went out and looked for any credit card that was 0% interest for three months, six months, nine months, 12 months, whatever the case may be. And then, uh, not that I am recommending this, this is not financial or legal advice because I do have to say that, but, uh, another option is putting it on an existing credit card, doing a balance transfer to a new credit card that maybe has a lower interest rate. So yeah, there's, there's definitely options. And I, I hear you. It's, it's tough whenever you tell an owner like, Hey, we need to do a $6,000 surgery and they need to make an immediate decision. It's, it's really difficult. So that's just unfortunately something that you might just kind of want to keep in the back of your mind from the day you get that little puppy that, Hey, something, something might come up and that's just the reality of it. Exactly. You know, there's, you'd never want to think about it, but there is always the chance of something happening. You know, just having that nest egg available to be able to provide the care or to do that surgery you need without even thinking about it. You know, it's just the best option. Um, It's not easy. I know it's not easy for any kind of pet owner. It's not easy for us either. We never want to see any pet suffer because of money. That's, that's something that we, you know, that's not something that we enjoy by any means. Um, on the other token of that, we do have to keep our lights on as a veterinary clinic because we are seeing other patients. We, you know, I hate to say it that way because it does sound kind of brunt, but we most of the time don't do any kind of payment plans. But if you have that availability through a credit card or through care credit, it it makes it so much easier on both sides that we're able to provide the care that your your pet needs. So to roll this into a little more of a positive note, we're moving positive here. What would you say is the most rewarding part of your job? Okay. So the most rewarding part is seeing the unconditional love and the resilience of animals. It is unreal. Just the things that you see in veterinary medicine from, you know, animals being hurt, you know, we're most of the time seeing them at their worst, whether they have a broken bone or they're sick or whatever the case may be, we're most of the time seeing them um, in pretty bad shape and they are so resilient. And some of our patients will have a literally a snapped femur and will be licking our face. Like they can be broken in so many places, but their heart, it has so much unconditional love that that is by far the most rewarding part of my job. It's amazing to see day in and day out. And, you know, I really think that dogs should be the standard for our, you know, entire world, the love that they show and the resilience that they show. It's Mm -hmm. it's incredible. Yeah. I want to be a dog when I grow up. Same. (laughs) All right. So to give everyone listening some tips and advice, what are three injuries or issues that you see frequently that could be prevented? Okay. So this might get a little lengthy, but I do want to cover just some of the more general topics that we see. Uh, one of the biggest things are heartworms, you know, and heartworm prevention, heartworm disease is deadly. You know, it can cause heart failure. It can cause other major um, organ damage. And like I said, it can, it can cause death. That is, you know, unfortunately things that we do see with heartworm disease, it's a serious, serious issue. Um, Heartworms are everywhere. And, 
you know, they're definitely more prevalent in the states that you are, you and I are in. So in Florida and Texas, right along that Gulf Coast where it stays warmer temperatures year round, that's where we're going to see a higher rate of heartworm, um, mainly because the heartworms are carried by mosquitoes. So when a mosquito bites your dog, if that mosquito is carrying the microfilaria or, you know, it, kind of a baby heartworm to think about it, um, they can then pass it on to your dog as soon as they bite your dog. It only takes six months for that heartworm to completely develop into an adult heartworm. So normally those are anywhere from about four to 12 inches. So it can be a foot long worm in your dog's heart, which is scary to think about, um, you know, <laughs> alone. So mm -hmm. I highly, highly recommend um, annual heartworm testing. That's very helpful just to make sure that everything is up to date and your dog is negative for heartworms. And the easiest thing is to keep your dog on heartworm prevention. There are so many options out there. You know, there's oral heartworm prevention and there's also injectable heartworm prevention. So the injectable heartworm prevention, you might've heard about it from your vets. It's called ProHeart is what we carry in our clinic and they are um, injections. So they're shots and they cover your dog for heartworms. Um, one of them covers the dog for six months and another one actually covers your dog for a year. So you can get that pro heart injection, cover your dog for a year. And then the next year you come back, you get your heartworm test. It's, you know, again, negative and you can get that shot again. It's never something that you have to think about besides your annual visit. So that is something that might be a little bit easier for owners. We, um, at our house, we use the oral Heartworm prevention, uh, one of the main reasons is because it also has an intestinal parasite control. So depending on your heartworm prevention, it might also cover your dog for hookworms or roundworms or other common intestinal parasites that they can pick up. So that's the main reason that we use the oral. Um, but yeah, heartworms are a huge thing that we see every single day, especially in Southeast Texas, that is so easily preventable and it's actually affordable. If you think about it, if you're sitting down to do the math for, you know, a monthly prevention or even your 12 month pro heart injection, it's really not too much as far as a financial burden goes. Um, so that's something that I highly recommend every dog to be on is, is a heartworm prevention. Okay. Um, you can talk to your vet, you know, see what your options are. They, they will give you the options that they have in their clinic and you can see what's going to be best for you and your pet. So another, <laughs> Another thing that we can prevent um, that we see every single day is pets that are overweight. And it's honestly a serious concern. I know that we look at some of these pets who are overweight and they might look cute and cuddly and all of these things, but it really is a health concern. Mm -hmm. I understand, you know, a lot of people, they love their animals by giving them food and that's how they bond. And I, we, you know, we as a veterinary community understand that but we just really wanna push that there are other healthy options out there that we can give our fur babies to keep them healthy in the long run. So instead of you know, trying to feed your dog the hamburger that you have on your plate or you know, whatever you may have, get a can of green beans and keep them in your fridge and you know, grab a green bean. That's my dog's favorite treat is a, you know, the can of fresh green beans. We will rinse off any salt that they have. We try to get the no salt um, canned green beans or a low sodium version and they love them. It's a human food that they're getting. They, you know, they feel like it's a treat and they, they love them. So there are options out there that we can use to keep our animals healthy, but also have that bonding experience of, you know, of giving them extra treats besides just their daily food. 
Right. Yeah. We give our dogs uh, carrots and asparagus and they absolutely love them. I really, I try not to buy any just regular treats because they don't need those extra calories. I hate to say it. They really don't. And I get it. I'm the same way with my peanut butter. But yeah, we usually do veggies. I know in the past sometimes and like in the summer, you could put blueberries in like a little ice cube tray, make them little ice cubes with blueberries in them. Uh, So yeah, there are definitely a lot of options on, you know, not buying. Well, I don't want to say any brands because I don't want to hurt any feelings. There are some fatty foods out there that you don't need to be buying for your dog, even though they're marketed for your dog, because you're going to see your dog pack on the pounds. Then they're going to have issues with their joints, issues with overall, you know, mobility, how to get around. And then that's just going to lead to a whole other slew of issues. Absolutely. That's what, that's the only other thing I was going to add is, you know, it's so much harder on their knees, on their joints. Just think about us gaining, you know, 10 to 20 pounds. It is so hard on your body to gain that weight. And, you know, your dog gaining, you know, two, five pounds, two to five pounds, that's a lot of weight for their body. So it's very difficult on them to gain that weight. And, you know, there are other things that happen when a dog is overweight, Um, you know, those MPLs that I was talking about, those TPLOs, they are, those surgeries are more prevalent in the dogs that are overweight because their knee is not made to carry that much weight. So we see a lot of issues as far as surgery goes um, when we have those overweight and still energetic dogs, you know, they're still energetic and want to play, but they have that excess weight, that excess weight pushing on their knee especially for dachshunds too. That's something that if you ever, you know, want to get a dachshund or a weenie dog that people call it, that is something that if they gain weight, it can be very, very hard on their back. Dachshunds are already prone to IVDD, which is intravertebral disc disease. And it's something, you know, that it can paralyze a dachshund um, very quickly. And if they have that access excess weight, you know, pulling them that back, that's fine down, it can be very painful. And it's just, you know, unnecessary. If we can prevent that, uh, there's a lot of health issues that we can prevent with our dog in the future as well. Right. So I think that's a, that's a, that's something that we can easily prevent. And, you know, there are things that we can do to help our animals be healthy. The last thing I wanted to talk about are foreign bodies. So we see so many foreign body surgeries, it is crazy. So for those of you who don't know, a foreign body surgery is where your pet ingests something that they are not supposed to ingest. It gets stuck in either their GI tract, it can get stuck in their stomach, even even if it makes it through that first part, it can get stuck um, basically anywhere in their GI system. And your dog is going to stop eating, it might have some diarrhea, it's going to have so many issues. It's going to be lethargic. It's going to feel awful because that thing is stuck in its gut and it can't get it out. So really the only option for that is to surgically go in and remove whatever they have eaten. Um, I have seen anywhere from toddler pants to parts of Frisbees to, you know, anything and everything that a dog can get into, they will get into. So really having durable toys, um, I personally highly recommend Kong toys. Uh, My dogs have not had an issue with those. And then also dog proofing your house. You know, if you're thinking about adopting a dog or getting a puppy, just think about kind of dog proofing a house like you would baby proof a house. So 
seeing anything that's small laying around the house, you might want to try to keep up off the floor out of their reach and things like that. You know, just very simple things that we might not think about. It can prevent really, really big issues with our dogs um, in the long run, having those foreign body surgeries. Yeah, that makes sense. So for us, we've always had a covered trash can, a tall covered trash can, because even though we have Pomeranians, they can still knock it over. So having a lid and a lid that locks has been very important because, I mean, I am positive that if they could get into it, they absolutely would because they love to get into everything that we have. So we keep that up. I try to make sure, uh, you know, something we do during the day is we don't let them run freely throughout the house. There's just too much opportunity there. So we like to put our dogs, they have their own little rooms. They have plenty of space. They have the whole room. And then those rooms are pretty doggy proof. There's like nothing that they can get into in those rooms. Yeah, that's such a good idea. If you're not home to watch them, having them in a separate room, it's it's just so much easier. You know, they they aren't deprived from anything staying in their own room. They feel safe in there. You know, it's their house. They There's no issues. And so that is a really, really good way to prevent any kind of foreign body surgeries from happening. Yeah. And before anyone comes for me, my dogs, when they get their own room, they have a king size bed. So like they're, they're Gucci. There's no problems with them being in their own room. Okay. So the final question for you today is what is one of the craziest things that you have seen during your time as a vet tech? Okay. So we work with a lot of rescues at our clinic and one of the rescues out of Houston actually brought us a really big pit bull who had a gunshot wound and come to find out this dog actually was found in a small wire like crate in Houston and he actually had two gunshot wounds from close range to his face and somehow he was still living um When he came into our clinic, we took x-rays. He unfortunately had broken facial bones. He had a ruptured eye and even pieces of the bullet were still lodged in his skull. Uh, the, The craziest thing about it is this was the sweetest dog I have ever met in my entire life. It was unreal, you know, with dried blood on his face Um, and his face literally broken, he was giving us kisses. His tail was wagging the entire time. Um, His name was Clarence. He was a big like gray and white pit bull and he was just the sweetest. Uh, After multiple surgeries, including the removal of his eye, we removed bullet pieces from his face and then also he had to be on extensive medication. Um, Clarence is healed and he's living his best life. And the last update I got, he's actually training for his canine good citizen um, certification. You know, unfortunately we have a lot of, I don't wanna say a lot, but we have multiple patients that come in with gunshot wounds. They have shattered bones. They have, you know, multiple bullets or pellets and we would not even know it if it wasn't for an X-ray. So, you know, we were not able to see them until they glow on that X-ray. And again, just kind of going back to, you know the most rewarding part, just dogs are so forgiving and so resilient. And Clarence was just one of those dogs that just sticks with me, but it was the craziest thing to see him come in. You know, these, these dogs are supposed to be big and mean and scary. And even after what had happened to him and, you know, someone, him seeing someone do that to him, you know, that's it's the ultimate betrayal. And he mm-hmm. came with such love in his heart. It was, 
it was crazy to me, you know, the, the best kind of crazy that you could picture. That's, that's what it was. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I definitely anticipate doing an episode on pit bulls. It's, it's kind of crazy. If you really think about the reputation that they've gotten and how long and how hard now we're trying to break that stigma and to make sure people understand. So a hundred percent, just a side note, I want to do an episode on that. If you're listening right now and you're any of the pit bull rescues that I follow, I would love to interview you. I would love to talk about pit bulls because they're the sweetest little babies. Um, Okay, Kristen, so tell us again, what is the name of your uh, veterinary clinic that you're at? So I work at Neighborhood Veterinary Centers. Uh, You can look us up on Facebook. Um, You know, you can look us up on the web. You might see it called um, NVC uh, for short. And so that's um, something that you can look us up at just because we have so many clinics. You know, there's six, almost seven clinics. So you might see NBC Groves, NBC, the one I'm specifically at is NBC Nederland. So like I said, I highly recommend that you look us up on Facebook, see what's going on in our new clinic and just to keep in touch with us and have a a vet for the future. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. All right. See you later. Thank you so much for listening to the Canine Culture Podcast. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcast. And don't forget to share with your friends and family. To stay up to date, please follow us on social media, Canine Culture Podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. If you have any questions or suggestions, please email us at caninecultureapodcast at gmail.com.